All right, thank you, men, as they're coming down. Um, want to encourage you in a couple of areas. One in the courses, as you've heard Trevor share about the movie tonight, the courageous movie. Some of you uh, got to see this in the theaters uh, when it came out. Um, heard tremendous things. Of course, this is the same folks who made Facing the Giants and Fireproof. Um, so you can expect a good message within this movie, of, uh, especially for men, uh, to take responsibility for what God's given them uh, and to surrender to God in these areas. And um, so I encourage you to, to bring folks uh, for this tonight, and um, I, I, think you'll, I think you'll be glad that they came. Um, with this same theme of uh, our men following the Lord, we're going to begin a early morning Bible study come January 31st on Tuesday morning uh, about man of God, being a man of God. Uh, they'll go for 10 weeks. Uh, I only right now have 20 uh, books available. I've been searching, and right now it's out of stock. So I'm hoping we can get more. So that's why we have a 20-person limit at this time. You'll see that in the bulletin. And uh, we will be announcing this again tonight. Uh, I think we could very well have more than that. But uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, it'll be on Tuesday mornings beginning at 6 a.m. Um, I figured you're not doing anything at 6 a.m. Um, no complicated schedules. And we'll be out at 7 so that you can go on with your day and work. Uh, but it'll be uh, in the fellowship hall here uh, beginning of the 31st. So uh, we'll need you to respond by email or by website. You can go to our website uh, under the Disciple U. Uh, look for the Disciple U and you'll see it there. And uh, you can uh, register that way or you can call us either way. Um, and we can uh, make, get that done. And I just appreciate, uh, we've got some talented folks. I don't know if y'all realize, David Eckerd, uh, the website that we've had for many years was the working of David Eckerd, uh, of his own volunteer uh, voluntary time and resources, and he's around here somewhere. You usually can't, there he is. You usually can't miss him. And I just want you to know what a resource we have in David Eckerd, and we just appreciate so much what he's been able to do the last few years uh, in the website. Uh, so many of you uh, found out about this church through the web uh, website. So uh, just appreciate the, the gifting of his time so for so many years, the past few years. Um, now, this, the courageous theme, uh, I think uh, we've, we've seen a contrast in that this past week. If you've been watching the news, listening to the radio, uh, reading internet, anything, you, you've probably seen uh, the sight of the Concordia, uh, the ship that uh, sunk uh, off the, the coast of Italy, uh, the coast of Concordia. Uh, I came across a blog that uh, described some of the events of this and just kind of really brought some things to light uh, as we not only heard the events that happened right off the shore, then we start getting uh, transcripts of the, the captain uh, and uh, an interaction between the captain and the Coast Guard that uh, really, you know, he from that earned the title, the chicken of the sea. Uh, and thinking, you know, it's just something that if it was made up, it, it, it really would be funny. But then you start thinking about this guy. And then you start thinking about the families. And what has happened because of decisions of really one key individual, not just one, but one key individual that's brought this tragedy to bear. Um, you know, the, the story goes is that uh, this giant vessel, this cruise ship, goes dangerously coast, uh, close to the Tuscan coastline. And the report is that so a crew member could greet his family. And so this guy's taking this massive ship into 
into waters that require tight maneuvering, uh, and so consequently hits a submerged outcropping of rocks, tearing a massive hole in the, the hull of the ship, and he's able to uh, rest on a reef so it's not totally sunk but listing heavily, as we've seen the pictures of this. Um, and so massive portions of the ship's interior space quickly filled with the cold, dark water. The death toll could rise as many as 40. Uh, already we've seen several confirmations, and at this point they're, they're starting to call things off uh, from, from the disaster that's there. So the question is, what sane captain would bring a massive $450 million vessel, $450 million vessel with 4,200 passengers and crew into such clearly dangerous water? Once the ship was compromised, were standard life-saving practices followed? We had these questions popping up. Why did this happen? And then we see this, this interaction between the captain uh, of the ship and the captain of the Italian Coast Guard who discovered the captain was not on board his ship, but in a rescue boat. The captain ordered, uh, the Coast Guard ordered the captain to return to his ship and command the rescue operation. He says to them, there are people trapped on board. Now you go with your boat, under the prow, on the starboard side, there is a pilot ladder. You will climb that ladder and go on board. You go on board, and then you will tell me how many people there are. Is that clear? I'm recording this conversation. The captain of the Coast Guard continues, You go up that pilot ladder. Get on that ship. Tell me how many people are still on board and what they need. Is that clear? You need to tell me if there are children, women, or people in need of assistance. Tell me the exact number of each of these categories. Is that clear? Listen, you saved yourself from the sea. But I'm going to make sure you get in trouble. I'm going to make you pay for this. Go on board. So he includes some choice language in, in this report. And he says, again, you go on board. It is an order. Don't make any more excuses. You've declared abandoned ship. Now I am in charge. You go on board. Is that clear? Do you hear me? Go and call me when you're on board. My air rescue crew is there. And this Coast Guard gets increasingly angry with the refusals of this captain to get back on a ship. He says, you want to go home? He asks in aspiration, it is dark, and you want to go home? Get on the prow of that boat using the pilot ladder and tell me what can be done, how many people there are, and what their needs are now. Authorities confirmed that he never did return to his vessel. He said that he slipped and fell into a lifeguard boat. <laughs> you, you hear that and you're thinking, who does he think we are? Does anyone believe that outside of himself? He failed to do what any man in his position would be expected to do. He even refused a direct command to take up his duty once he abandoned it, consigning over 4,200 being humans in his care to the dark waters of that coast. At the same time, you've got another man, 57-year-old crew member on the same ship, devoting himself fearlessly to the rescue of passengers returning to the listing ship again and again to find them, return them safely. He stopped only when he badly fractured his leg and had to be rescued himself. And so another individual, a Francis Cervelle, who attempted to flee the boat with his wife, Nicole, discovered that there was only one life jacket. He put it on his wife, and that was her last sight of him. I owe my life to my husband, she says. The Merchant Marine Officer's Handbook states what is expected of a shipmaster. First responsibility is this. The master is to be the last man 
to leave the vessel. You compare this with other stories, and, and some have made comparisons with um, the um, Titanic and what was done and the attitude of saving the women and children versus what society is today, and, and I think also depending on other ships at that same time. There's another uh, story in 1857 of, of Commander Herndon. He's commanding the commercial vessel Central America, and it sinks outside the, outside the coast of Cape Hatteras here in North Carolina. He evacuated 31 women and 28 children before the ship sank into the stormy waters. Survivors told of seeing Commander Herndon go down with his ship. Sigar chomped in his teeth, his head bowed in prayer. A portrait of courage, devotion to his charge, and defiance of fear. So we have two vessels that's been commissioned there in the naval base at Annapolis in honor of him. We have two different men. Two different situations, two different decisions. And uh, Al Mohler, in writing a blog about this, says this. Decision we make in the present will determine the kind of decision we would make in the future if we were to face the same challenge. We often ask ourselves, what will we do when we're in that point in time? And the answer to that question of what will we do in that point in time is answered by what we do today. What is our lifestyle today? What is the courage of living as a man today. And what I want to present to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, much is made for for men to say, be strong. And I would say to men who follow Christ, it's not so much of being strong, because all of us have limited strength, but for men who follow Christ is to trust in the strong one. It's not trusting in yourself, but trusting in Christ who made you. And as you take today and trust in Christ, we develop patterns of who we will be when the pressure is on us. Do not think and deceive ourselves that we're going to do something different when the pressure is on us than what we'll do today. And so with this thought in mind, these recent events, I've asked uh, three men in our church to share, um, to give a testimony. And I've told them specifically Uh, I want them to encourage you to trust in God. Share a story of your life, of how you've seen God work in your life, that will encourage the rest of us to trust in God. And so uh, the three men I've asked uh, is including uh, Jack Lewis, uh, Jeff Haynes, and Tony Bridgers. And so I'm going to, at this time, I'm going to ask Jack Lewis if he'll come up. Uh, Jack has been a a member here for a number of years. Uh, Of course, many of you... I know his children as well. Jack, if you come up. Mike Lewis was the one who we recently commissioned off into the Marines. Uh, And so, Jack, if you'll come and share with us how God's been working in your life.
We went to Sunday school, church, Bible, uh, Bible school in the summer, and uh, we lived a normal life, and I was baptized when I was 12 years old. That was a tradition. Presbyterians full of, full of tradition. Um, so at 12, I, I was baptized. I knew about Jesus. I knew about God, but I wasn't, I didn't know him. He wasn't in me. So I went on thinking that I was a good kid all through high school, kind of humdrum, no big deal, didn't do a whole lot, till I, till my senior year of high school. Then I started hanging out with the wrong crowd, as a lot of you do. And at this point, bear with me, adults, because this is going to be geared more towards the young people. Don't make the same mistakes I did. I didn't like the door shut behind me in a police cruiser. If you've ever watched the, the uh, there's a uh, TV program on, on Spike, I believe it is, or whatever. It's called Locked Up, the jail. If you've ever seen and heard that the sound of the door closing when they shut the jail door, that's exactly what it sounds like. And it's a very scary feeling, knowing that you cannot get out. They will not let you out. They will not let you talk to anybody till you get one phone call. I've had to make that phone call. That was, you talk about a, a heartbreak to my parents. That was the worst phone call that I've ever made. Daddy come get me out of jail. My dad, he was brought up, He, if I got in trouble, he wasn't going to bail me out, so I had to pay my own way out. He just brought me the money. Okay, fast forward a few years. I moved down here in 1985, still live, living the same lifestyle. In 1988, or in 1986, excuse me, I met my wife, my future wife. Still living the same lifestyle, but starting to slow down. In 1988, we got married. Thought, I thought I had met my one and only from death do us part. I, was, I looked at, to my parents as the role model for my marriage and my life. Right now, they're going on 60 years being together. I've been looking for that. Yeah. Right now, my attitude is when the Lord puts somebody in front of me, he's going to let me know. Uh, but anyway, uh, we got married, had five years together just ourselves getting to know each other 
1992, Michael would come along. And in the meantime, we started going to her church. She was a, a Catholic, not a very good one, but I'm, I'm, it's no slam against the Catholic church, whatever. But uh, I did, just wasn't feeling it. There wasn't, wasn't anything going on growing in me. So uh, we, 1992 come along, Michael came, came into our life. That's when I start, really started believing. Two months, about a month and a half before Michael was born, I went to, went to a business opportunity and on, for a weekend. And on that, the Sunday morning, they had a, a church service. That's when I heard the real, the real gospel. That's when I accepted Jesus. That feeling was indescribable. Death left me and life came to me. Is, is, that's the only way I can describe it. When I, when I accepted Jesus, I thought everything was going to be nothing but a, red, a bed of roses. But the word doesn't say that. He just says, I will give you life. Life more abundantly, life everlasting. In 1994, I, we were blessed by two beautiful girls. I'm so proud of all three of my kids. As, as Jared alluded to, Michael is a up-and-coming Marine. He's in, he's in a class right now in a school, and he will be going into another school as soon as he graduates this one. But I'm so proud of him. Uh, I strive to bring my kids up in Proverbs, using Proverbs, uh, bring up a child in the way they will go, and when they grow old, they they will come back to it. Uh, this is paraphrasing. I'm sorry, Jared. Uh, I know enough enough about the Bible to be dangerous, <laughs> and sometimes it's a danger to me. But I still am a firm believer in the Word and of the spoken word because that I, I think in my heart that's where Michael and the girls came from because I prayed for it I prayed for them prayed for one girl I was surprised <laughs> God has a sense of humor uh, but in 2003, after a number of years of turmoil, 
uh, their mother and I decided to part ways. Needless to say, you all know that who's who they stayed with. But it's been such a blessing to know Jesus in my heart and know that I can rely on his wisdom how to bring my children up and how I will turn out even though I'm a work in progress I know the end result I know where I'm going and kids you may not agree with your parents may not like what they say listen to them they have your best interest at heart just like God the Father does he knows all he knows everything trust in that thank you thank you Jack the next two men, you, uh, chances are you may not have talked with these guys. These guys um, don't normally um, take such public uh, opportunities to talk, um, uh, but uh, they've got some, some powerful things to say. Um, they've been trusting the Lord, and um, I, I really wanted you to hear from them as well. Uh, Jeff Haynes, uh, if you'll come, Jeff Haynes, uh, he's been a member of the church, I think, the last three or four years, um, and uh he found this church by researching, which is fitting, um, because that's what he does. He's, he's a researcher. And so, Jeff, you'll come and share uh, how the Lord's worked in your life. Yes, several years ago, I guess I gave my testimony at our men's group, uh, and that's where Jared heard me. But I was rather surprised that he asked me to give one of the testimonies today, because I think I probably have one of the dullest and least dramatic testimonies I can imagine. Um, and thank you also for placing me after Jack Lewis's powerful testimony as well. So <laughs> mine will be quite a contrast. Um, probably throughout any time in my life, I would have told you I was a Christian. Uh, looking back on it now, I think there's a lot of those times when I really wouldn't have known what that truly was. Uh, but. Uh, I think I represent a lot of people that we just grow up, that's what we think we are. Um, my father was a, a lapsed Catholic, and I think from events in his family background, he had a very skeptical view of organized religion. Uh, consequently, we were only an occasionally church-going family. Uh, so I did not grow up in a church um, and didn't have that benefit that many of you do have. Uh, I always have been a person that has followed the rules. Uh, I was always very successful in school. I've never had anything really bad happen to me. So in many ways, I can't, I don't have the uh, falling into the gutter type testimony that some, when you, people who do that, when they really know that they have nothing and there's nothing more to turn to but God, uh, I did not have that advantage in a way as a Christian. Uh, I think we had, I have, uh, my rock bottom was a period of comfort and complacency 
And spiritually, I think that may be a deeper gutter for many people to get out of than those who actually have problems with drugs or alcohol or get in trouble and go to jail or, and experience those types of things. Uh, I was always very successful in school. I, I ended up going to Duke University. I had a full scholarship because I was one of the winners in the state math contest. Uh, I ended up being in the biological sciences and because of my mathematical bent, I tended towards a very mathematical area of the biological sciences, uh, which in my case was theoretical population genetics. And specifically, I, was, uh, I would have considered myself an evolutionary biologist. Um, and this is a world that is based on materialism. Uh, that does not, I think when the life sciences first began, the, the object was to uh, catalog and study the glory of God and the magnificence of God's works. But along the way, that changed, uh, specifically with the theory of evolution, to try to create a world that explains how the world could be made without any room for a God in it. Um, I think the more and more I studied the, the theoretical underpinnings of this, the more and more I could see the problems with it. And eventually I got to the point where I, uh, with this flash in my mind that I realized that these, the theories of science itself, ultimately you get to the point where they require a leap of faith as great as that as which they sneer at us as Christians for believing in God. Uh, for example, the one of the main theories on the way the universe began requires the suspension of belief of all the physical laws that we actually can observe, and we believe that all matter somehow overcame these forces that repel them to be in a single point at a time and then created the great explosion. Uh, this, I think, requires as much faith as believing in the creator himself. Uh, there are several passages when I'm looking back now and when I was struggling with this from the Bible that uh, brought me great insight uh, for the place of man's reason. Uh, one of them is this passage in 1 Corinthians, and I love both books of Corinthians, but uh, uh, chapter 1, 18 through 25, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For as written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And I think there's so much wisdom in those words. Uh, looking back also at my biological career, um, another passage comes to mind, uh, especially for the people who try to create a world that uh, without God and trying to explain everything only with what we can perceive with our senses. For the wrath of God, and this is from Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For those who truly study nature and this world and the creation of God, there are so many things within it that point to God being the creator and also for the gospel itself. I mean, we are in winter, a period where we see everything, the trees and plants seemingly to die, and yet in the spring, around the time of Easter, we see resurrection and the promise of life anew. God has put these things there in nature for us to see and to point the way to him. Uh, and in our own uh, hubris, our own pride, we try to explain this world without him. Now, God works in uh, his own timing. Uh, mine certainly, I don't think, was a, is a testimony of a flash of lightning. Uh, this all occurred over a period of years, and uh, it was a gradual process. I think the Holy Spirit has worked within me, but uh, perhaps I've fought him every step of the way. But I have to uh, reason things out for myself. I have to investigate. I have to research. Uh, and, uh, but I also... I, thank God for placing the Holy Spirit within me that allowed me to open my eyes uh, and to know what the actual truth is and where I was actually going. Uh, I think uh, after I graduated from college, I went and worked in a research lab at uh, Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Uh, so I was in another scientific research environment. Um, Another one, like all, most science nowadays, it's a very materialistic world, uh, and it was certainly not one I would say is, is friendly to a uh, believing Christian. Uh, it was also a place where we had people from all over the world, so there were many different religious groups, the people I was in contact with, so it was very much an attitude of all religions are equally valid and we must all respect each other and not uh, get into arguments with, with each other. But uh, as more and more God was working in my heart, uh, I drew closer and closer to him and started studying the word more and more. Uh, and I've really recommitted myself to him in the spring of the year 2000. Uh, it's just that was a time when I felt I needed to make some changes. And I wanted to make big changes in my life, but I felt I could not do that validly without really giving myself over to God and, and seeking his guidance in prayer. Uh, one of the things that I did at this time in the summer of that year was I quit my job in medical research and became a full-time researcher in my other love, which is family history and genealogy. And since that time, I've uh, been my own, uh, run my own business doing that kind of research for private clients. But this was also a great leap of faith for me because this meant giving up a regular paycheck and, and the health benefits and everything that went along with a regular full-time job. Uh, working for someone else, but uh, through God's grace, I've been successful at my new endeavors and have been able to um, exist without having to rely on others to uh, support me. I think there, from my life experiences, I think there's three main thoughts that I um, draw out of that, and one I've talked about was comfort and complacency as a rock bottom. Uh, I never did get into trouble. I never did have anything that physically made me cry out to God. For me, it was more of these battles in the mind and, and working things out philosophically. But I think Proverbs uh, 30, 8 through 9 has a, a, a passage that I found helpful. Uh, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
uh, but give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you, and ask, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And again, I think this calls us that we can get to a point where we're very comfortable where we are, uh, and we can create our own little worlds where we do not have a God in them. Uh, the other thing is God works in his own time, and a, a passage that means a lot to me is Second Peter 3, 8 through 9. Uh, but no, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so sometimes I, we get very impatient. We want uh, this a conversion experience like Saul had on the road to Damascus, but a lot of times God's timing and the speed at which God's work are those that are perfect for him and may not be what our, our initial desires are or what our expectations are, but we need to rely on God. And finally, God, God's faithfulness. Uh, the work on my heart came solely from the Holy Spirit. It was not something that I did on my own. It wasn't my own reason that found God. It was God working on me himself. Uh, and great Psalm 57, 9 through 10, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Thank you. Now, the next individual, Tony Bridgers, was here before me and was here a good while before me as a member of the church, and many of you have come to know him, uh, but uh, he's often one of the quiet ones as well. So, Tony, if you'll come and share um, how the Lord's been working in your life. I will speak to you on a subject that's probably not your normal testimony. I'm going to speak to you how God has worked in my life as far as stewardship. Um, in a service much like this one, probably 25 or 30 years ago, I had the opportunity to hear John Snipes, John's back in the back. He gave his testimony on tithing. He told us that uh, right after he and his wife, Betty, married, they made the decision that they should tithe as the Bible tells us we should that uh, impressed me. At that time, Sandra and I were tipping God. We were giving weekly, but uh, we were giving nowhere near a tithe. We were convicted at that time that we should start, so we did. <coughs> um, there uh, came a time in our lives where my paycheck was not covering our bills what were we going to do where well, we were faithful to God and God was faithful to us I was at the point in my career as a state employee I could retire start receiving a retirement check good deal that was not going to pay the bills but I was still a young man then and I had the opportunity to uh, get in the consulting business which I did I took a long weekend and was back to work. I worked as a consultant for 10 years, made all the money that we needed to uh, cover our bills, plus more. 
God was blessing us. He was faithful to us. Well, after 10 years, the economy was kind of sinking. Tony gets laid off. Tony still has bills to pay. What's Tony going to do? Well, fortunately, the company I worked with had a severance pay plan, which means that if you're laid off for whatever reason, they will pay you, continue to pay you for a certain length of time. Well, I had worked there long enough where I could receive four months of severance pay, just like I was working. Good deal. I was good for four months. What are you going to do? Still had bills coming in. Well, I was kind of enjoying the retirement life, but I knew the end of the tunnel, four months was coming up quick. So I started applying for jobs. Well, just before the fourth month ended, I got a call to go into interview. Got that job. God's right in there, still being faithful to us. So I worked there for uh, a little over two years. At this point, I was eligible to draw Social Security. Well, being the bright guy I am, state retirement, Social Security, why are you working? So I made the decision to retire. So I did. That was a year ago, this past October. Well, since that time, we have found out that sometimes our retirement check and Social Security wouldn't meet our obligations and be able to tithe. That was a dilemma in my life because I knew that God wanted me to. So what do you do? One night during my quiet time, I asked God to do something about it, to give me uh, some type of job that I could uh, be able to tithe, be you know, faithful to him because he had been faithful to me for all these years. Well, just right in the clear blue sky one night, the telephone rings. They called me. Uh, a group of guys were starting a company and asked me if I'd like to join. I said, God, you're at it again. <coughs> so uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be starting work again. But God was always faithful to us, and I think I need to be faithful to him. And I just praise him for what he's done. Thank you. appreciate each of these men sharing, and I think you can see how these men have not had necessarily what you call easy lives. They're normal lives, aren't they? Lives where you struggle with your relationships, struggle with your intellect, understanding, uh, study, struggle with finances. But in each one of these areas, they shared how God uh, sustained them and taught them, and they are faithful to him. And so with that thought in mind, I want you to go, uh, as we uh, kind of summary, go to our text of what we're looking at uh, today, John chapter 9. Um, this is what we looked at as well last week as we considered uh, the first five verses of this miracle that God works. And this miracle uh, takes all of the chapter of John chapter 9. The point of the miracle is to prove to all the readers and those witnesses that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God. 
And so uh, I want to actually look at the miracle itself. It, it takes all of two verses. Out of 41 verses of John 9, the actual miracle takes two verses. Everything else is the implications of this miracle. And I, I think you'll, you'll see the point here. Uh, last week, uh, as we looked in John 9, we saw this man born blind. The question uh, of this born blind man sparked a... Uh, theological controversy over the disciples and where the disciples saw a theological controversy Jesus saw an opportunity uh, for the kingdom and so uh, we broadcast the gospel to show God's power over our disability we talked about how uh, Jesus says this man was born uh, to show God's kingdom and in our society we looked at last week that would be easy subject to be aborted this is a baby that's to be done away with uh, and we saw how, in, how Jesus looked at that as totally different. That it's not a, a child to be killed, but a child to display God's glory. And then we looked at this and, and saw Jesus' reaction, uh, especially when in verse 4, when he says, We're going to have to work now while it's day, night soon coming. We broadcast the gospel because opportunity is limited. There's a, a just a, a short amount of time that God's given us to share with someone about Jesus Christ and what he's done. And I want you to take note of the pronoun in verse 4. He doesn't say I, he says we. We must work the works of him who sent me. He is inviting you to work along with Jesus Christ in the time that you've got. And so we keep on reading and we see in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And we saw we broadcast the gospel because Christ is the antidote to a blind world. Apart from Jesus Christ, there are folks who cannot see the glory of God and who he is and how God's made him to be. They are left to their own devices and they seek the glory of themselves. And Jesus is the only antidote to that. And so... With these thoughts in mind, I want us to read together uh, John chapter 9 as we read verses 1 through 12, uh, and we actually look at the miracle itself. So let's stand as we read John 9, 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to them, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. You may be seated. I want to share with you how we broadcast the gospel, realizing uh, we'll have time to go over one of these uh, main 
lessons. But uh, first of all, we broadcast the gospel, and God broadcasts the gospel, but God uses the common to broadcast the gospel. He uses the common to do so. God also uses obedience to broadcast the gospel. And then God uses transformed lives, transformed lives to broadcast the gospel. But let's look first at this idea of God using the common. There are miracles all throughout the New Testament where God uses a number of ways to heal someone. Sometimes he does it with the word, be healed, rise up. Sometimes he does it and, and says, go back home and you'll find that your servant is healed. And you know, they find that it's happened long distance, so to speak. But in this case, and we see one other case in Mark where God, uh, through Jesus, does this. He uses mud. He uses spit. He uses a touch of his hand. And it sparks all kinds of questions because anytime people start spitting, we ask, why? Why, why spit? Why mud? Really, did you have to put that on my eye? Put that on his eye? And uh, I come to it with the same questions you ask. You ask and, and Jesus never sits down and says, well, to disciples, here's why I use mud. You've got to use this type of mud. You've got to use this type of consistency and make sure you have this type of spittle. And Why? Why did he not do that? Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter what type of mud. All right? It, the, the, the power wasn't in the method. The power was in the source. Now, there's a lot of things that happened because he used the mud, uh, used the spit. Um, it sparked this huge debate among the Pharisees. And that really is much of the rest of the chapter. Because when Jesus spit in the mud and, and wadded the mud together, he was technically breaking the Sabbath command uh, of, of the Jews, the Pharisaical, Pharisaical law. You're not supposed to knead dough or mud and it could very well be that Jesus was just saying, I'm going to show them, bam, let's see how they deal with this. And did something in the spite of mankind's law. Could have been. That was certainly the implication. And that created this huge debate in the rest of this chapter. It could be that he was hearkening back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, which says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. creature. What God does with mud is amazing. He can create stuff out of nothing. Surely, surely he can do stuff out of mud. And Jesus is putting himself in the same lines of the creator of God and say, look what I am doing with mud. But regardless of the reason why Jesus used mud, the point simply is, is it doesn't matter what or who he uses. What if mud could talk? What would mud say? Would mud boast about its inherent qualities of being a certain type of dust? Mud would not say such things. The mud would simply say, God spit on me. And look at what happened. It dawns on me as I read this passage. I encourage you to read this chapter. I think that the man would say, much as, as Jeff was bringing out, Better to be spit upon by Jesus than to be accepted by the religious Pharisees. Because the acceptance of the religious Pharisees brought him no sight. But when Jesus spat upon him, his life changed. 
better the insults, better the foolishness of God than the wisdom of man. That which would normally would dirty our eye when it comes from God brings healing. I think that's what the blind man would say as he encountered who Jesus is. But as I read this, I saw this similarity between 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which talks about how we are blind because we've got a veil over our heart eyes that we cannot see the glory of Christ. And that veil is not lifted unless Jesus lifts that veil off our heart. And here you have in John 9, Jesus bringing out the the very point. If you go to the end uh, of the chapter, you see uh, in, in verse 39, he says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind he says the point of all this miracle is that i can bring sight to those who are blind in their heart and those who think they've got something who think they know god he brings blindness to them he brings a veil over the heart and interesting in second corinthians 4 that has this parallel theme you've got verse 7 that says this we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to god and not to us. Second Corinthians 4 says, We're all, we all are made of so much mud. We're made of so much dirt. And the, the beauty of who we are is not because of the inherent qualities of who we are, our hair, our intellect, our dress, our physical stamina, even the wisdom that we might have. What makes us Glorifying to God is not the substance of who we are, but what Christ does in us. Those who see the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, that's the treasure. And when this watching world sees people who are just like them, who have the same uh, foibles, the same selfishness, the same quirks, the same problems, the same weaknesses, when those type of people are found in adverse situations like blindness, disability and crippling and financial hardship of of not understanding what's going on of divorces and and living life bringing life up our children up on your own and these type of circumstances that happen and then they see the people's attitude in that time that they have great hope and they speak boldly of jesus christ because their life is sustained in Jesus Christ, and there's joy in their life, there's peace in their life, there's a strength that's in that life. Mankind sees, man, they are made of mud like me, but why are they so different? God uses the common to broadcast the gospel. A huge uproar follows after this guy, and I can't help but just notice what the man does not know. Verse 12, 11. They said, how did you get your eyes open? Give us the formula. Let's broadcast this formula. Let's talk, tell people, how do you turn from blind to seeing? Can you give us some seminar? Can you give us some lessons? Can we teach this in all the synagogues around? He says, I don't know. There's a man called Jesus. He made mud. He anointed my eyes. He didn't even see him talk about the spitting part. He just said he anointed my eyes with this mud. And then he, he told me to go wash in the pool. So I went and washed and received my sight. And I said, well, where is he? I don't even know that. Just a man called Jesus. And I don't know where he is. He told me to do this. And 
bam, I'm changed. Had no synagogue training. Before long, he's brought to the leaders of the synagogue. These are the seminarians, the folks who have their PhDs in theology. And they're, they're coming to him and they say, what's going on? And he's just saying, I marvel at your stupidity. He gets cast out from the synagogue for the, making such statements. Here's the thought. He did not let what he did not know ruin what he did. He did not let what he did not know to ruin what he did know. So many times we say, you know, Jesus has done these things in my life, but I don't know the answers to all these questions. I don't know the answers to my own, my own questions that I've got. And I don't want to share anything because they might ask me something that I don't know the answer to. So what? You're mud. We're mud. We don't have to know all the answers. And don't let what you don't know ruin what you do know. Our job is to broadcast what Jesus has done in our life. You see, God uses the common. It doesn't really matter the means, the mud, the consistency of spittle versus mud. What matters is where it comes from. And let me just say this. All we deal with are means. What we're doing right here is a means. It doesn't matter the building. It doesn't matter the tradition. It doesn't matter the songs we choose. It doesn't matter how we pray. What matters is, is the Spirit of God in it. It's all clay. It's just means, and God uses different things. The very question that we need to ask is, am I seeking God, and is God speaking to me? Am I worshiping him in spirit and in truth? Everything else is just means. The biggest thing is, is God speaking to me? Am I speaking to God? So for those of us who go away thinking, well, you know, I'm not like Jack. Jack will tell you I'm not like you, you know. But I don't know why the pastor asked me to come speak. Jeff will tell you the same. Tony will tell you the same. They all told me, they said, why do you want me to speak? Because God uses everyday people to broadcast the gospel. All you have to do is simply tell someone else why you trust God. Is that so hard? I know there's a fear of mankind that enters into this. And it comes out in this chapter as well. But I'm just going to say, it is better to let the foolishness of God be in our life, the spitting of God be in our life, than the acceptance of the world around us when they say, oh, you are so wise. Let them call us fools. But know that it's better to be a fool with Christ because the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. Do you believe that? It's going to come out in that moment in time when you say, you know, I could say this right now about Jesus Christ, but if I do, they're going to think I'm an ignorant bigot. They're going to think I'm foolish. It is at that point in time the question is revealed, 
what's better, the foolishness of God or the wisdom of man? I'm going to pray for us at that, that at that moment. And that moment will happen in our life. We're going to pray for that moment. Our job is to broadcast the gospel, to know that Jesus Christ is sufficient for our sin. If he's sufficient for our sin, he's sufficient for us to talk about. Let us pray that in that moment of time, we will share that, you know what? I'm a sinner. I've messed up. But God knows that about me. He loves me still. He died to pay for the penalty of my sins. And I've stopped trying on my own, and I've started trusting what Jesus has done for me. And I gladly confess my sins to him and proclaim him my Lord and Savior. And I will follow him for the rest of my days. That's salvation. That's what God is doing. Can you share that with somebody? Let's pray for that.